we start with vaccine passports. Could they be coming to Canada? We've seen other countries go with this system. You must show a passport or proof of vaccination, maybe to travel or to go to sports events. Could Canada do something very similar to this now now have a listen to this here here is prime minister justin trudeau and he was asked about this idea of a vaccine certificate and certification here's what he said certificates of vaccination are a part of international travel to certain regions and uh, are naturally to be expected when it comes to uh this pandemic and and uh, the the coronavirus how we actually roll that out in alignment with partners and uh, and uh, allies around the world uh, is something that we're working on right now to coordinate. I can assure you that our decisions will be based on science uh, and the fact that those decisions are ongoing uh, and those discussions are ongoing right now means that uh, we will be uh, aligned with our partners around the world. Sounds like a yes, it will likely happen. Uh, we are working on it on a scientific basis, and we will have more to announce when we have to announce. Okay, okay. you know, kind of classic political answer there a little bit, but very clearly indicating, yeah, I mean, Canada looking at this, a vaccine passport system. Let's discuss now with my guest, Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto. Hi, Carrie. Hello. Well, hey, th- I do take that as a yes. That's my guess okay. <laughs> from what our prime minister said. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's and, too too big a leap. Yeah. No. And, you know, big difference between whether we're talking about vaccine passports globally or, or nationally, meaning domestically. But, but look, he, our, our prime minister is correct. I mean, you know, with the European Union and the United States now coming up with a plan, uh, Canada's going to have to do something. And, and, you know, a lot of that is economic. And, and yes, we already have that. We have the yellow cards, et cetera. But, you know, from an ethical point of view, one of the greatest concerns internationally is somewhere in the summer of 2021, the only people that are going to be able to move around this world are going to be people from wealthy, privileged countries. And even that is going to be limited. Um, so and, you know, that will change with time. But it, I, it's inevitable. I get that. But it's not without ethical problems. Okay, it's very interesting, and we've seen some other countries go in this direction, right? Notably Israel, which has done uh, a terrific job of vaccinating their their citizens there, and they've brought in a similar system that they refer to as a a green pass. And as I understand it, Carrie, it's basically kind of a pass with a a barcode, right, that can be scanned if if you're going around, you're moving around. Yeah, how does that work? That's exactly it, It, you know, with a barcode. And then that would be entry to whatever you want to go out for dinner, a sports event. I mean, Israel is doing that. Uh, The European Union is also considering calling it the green. I don't know what's green about it. But anyway, they've come up with that color. I guess guess it's a green green light. light. Yeah, green light. I guess so. I guess so. But but, you know, it, it will come with a lot of challenges. My guess is Canada does not want to go in that direction uh, domestically, but market forces will drive that in which, you know, bars, sports facilities, I'm talking Canada now, will increasingly say, you know, if you want to come in, you need this. But look, let me just circle back to something. Um, sure. We There's still no scientific proof, evidence that if you are vaccinated, you are absolutely not infectious to anyone else. No proof yet. Looks like it, but no proof. Secondly, how long does a vaccine last? We don't know. You know, is it good for a year? We don't know. Um, hopefully it is. But again, we don't know. So the problem is we're way ahead of the science on this. And when our government says we need more scientific clarity, I actually agree with them on this. 
Okay, that's an interesting point you raised about, and I was wondering about this too, that if you're, let's say you're fully vaccinated and the virus enters your, your body, uh, I understand how the vaccine works. It does a great job in, in fighting off in, in disease and serious illness and death, which is great. Um, but is it still possible that you can infect somebody else, even if you don't get sick, but you can still pass it on? That, so we don't know that for sure yet, or? We do not know that for sure. Uh, Look, it, uh, it's my take on this, and I'm not a virologist, is it's starting to look like you probably can't. But look, the big complicating factor is the variants. Like, are the variants working well against all the vaccines? Not sure yet. And yeah. if the variants keep coming at us, what does that mean in relation to passports? Also, those passports are going to say which vaccine you had. So you could get into a situation where some country doesn't like the vaccine you've had. Um, that oh. will complicate it as well. Right. Speaking to Carrie Bowman from the University of Toronto about vaccine passports, just reading about how this uh, Green Pass works in, in Israel with the barcode. And you have to have one of these vaccine certificates or barcodes to go into mass events and venues like festivals, stadiums, uh, nightclubs. And if you don't have one, if you've not been vaccinated, you have restrictions on where you can go right like i was reading that you could still go to a restaurant but you'd have to sit outside <laughs> you know if you don't yeah, have and the in Israel, that's easier than here for now yeah, yeah. <laughs> depending yeah. on our season yeah okay so that's some interesting domestic rules but you know it, it also brings up a point you touched on earlier and that's international travel like i wonder if a lot of countries start going in this direction in europe uh especially maybe i don't know what the united states is planning to do but maybe canada would have no choice but to do something similar no, we, we will have no choice. I, in no. My, I'm absolutely certain we'll have no choice. And, and we're going to have to do it. Now, mentioning the United States, that's the big one. And I think the Americans very soon in the months ahead are going to say, look, and remembering they're way ahead of us. Look, Canadians are welcome here, but you've got to be vaccinated. Um, I think that is definitely coming. And, you know, for some people that either can't be vaccinated or really don't want to be vaccinated, you could say, well, they should get it anyway. But, you know, they, they've got the right to make that decision for themselves. That's going to be tough. I think, I think you know, the U.S.-Canada border is, a, in my opinion, is likely going to be a definite. Does this, what kind of consequences does this have for society as a whole? Like if you have like a two-tier system of people who are, if someone for whatever reason doesn't want to get the vaccine, they become like, I don't know, like a second-class citizen. They're not allowed to do everything else that other people do. Is that a danger? No, it has, it has you're exactly right. It has huge consequences. Freedom of movement. Like we don't talk about freedom of movement because we've always had freedom of movement. Freedom of movement is a democratic right and it infringes upon that. And, you know, people that are marginalized for whatever reason are going to be less likely to be vaccinated. And there's people that simply can't be. Ethically, this is very problematic. I see it as far more problematic nationally, meaning domestically. Internationally, I don't love it, but it's, it's definitely going to happen. But how we organize ourselves within our own country is going to be a big challenge. And look, let's hope it's only a few weeks or months, well, months, I guess, where we have to deal with this and everything will get so much better we won't need it. But of course, yeah. as we all know, the wild card now is the variants. Where is that going? Could it be helpful, though, in encouraging people to get the vaccine? Like maybe if someone is a vaccine hesitant, they're worried about it. If you bring in a system yeah. like that, more people might get the vaccine. Well, there could be the word helpful or the word coercive, right? Yeah. <laughs> it will yeah. be helpful because some people are going to say, look, I don't even want this thing, but you know, I, I want to go to the pub. I want to, whatever they want to do, I want to go watch a basketball game. 
But, you know, it, 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 it will become coercive if you can't even go out for lunch um, without this. And it would raise questions of, of the fundamental rights of people that don't want to be vaccinated. Right, right. Okay, we continue to watch it very closely. Thank you very much for coming on with your analysis. You're very welcome. That's okay, thanks a lot. That is Carrie Bowman there, who is a bioethicist. He's at the University of Toronto uh, talking about the potential for a vaccine passport. Is an interesting comments there from Justin Trudeau. Clearly, this is on the table for Canada. Here we go now with the pipeline versus the hummingbird. Construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline delayed now after the discovery of a hummingbird nest in the path of the pipeline construction. we got a great panel standing by to talk about this. First, let's have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Linda Aylesworth. If the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project is Goliath, then this would be David. I give thanks to these small birds whose nests can fit in the palm of your hand for having a part in stopping a multi-billion dollar pipeline. This is how the celebration of the temporary stoppage of construction held outside the Trans Mountain Tank Farm in Burnaby came to be. In February, we were noticing that Trans Mountain was cutting even though bird nesting season was starting. WE is the Community Nest Finding Network, a group of Burnaby residents which formed to make sure Trans Mountain was obeying the Migratory Birds Convention Act, which protects nesting birds. I, along with the wildlife officers, the federal wildlife officers, we witnessed the destruction of the nest by active cutting by Trans Mountain. The nest belonged to an Anna's hummingbird that the group had spotted a few days earlier. We, we looked over and saw a tree fall, and at which point the wildlife officer ordered the work to be stopped. Trans Mountain knows that destroying bird nests and eggs is illegal. One of its executives acknowledged it in an affidavit last year. Okay, that report there from Global News reporter Linda Aylesworth about pipeline construction delayed here after the discovery of an Anna's hummingbird nest. That nest is about the size of a ping pong ball, very, very tiny nest, but it was big enough to slow construction of the pipeline. Now, the pipeline company has said, yes, they are respecting the stop work order in this area in Burnaby, but construction of the pipeline going on elsewhere. But don't kid yourself, there may be more nests discovered here and pipeline opponents saying they're looking exactly for that. They're looking for more birds' nests here. Could we see more delays of pipeline construction? All right, we got a great camp panel to talk about it now. Peter McCartney on the line. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. He's opposed to the pipeline. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. How, thanks again for being here. Margareta Dovgal is a researcher with ResourceWorks. Hi, Margareta. Hi, Mike. Nice to be here. Thanks a lot for doing this. Peter, let me go to you first. The discovery of this nest, I guess a lot of pipeline opponents are celebrating this, but I don't know. I don't think this is going to be enough to stop construction of this project, but what do you think? Well, you know, it stops construction in one area, which is actually a huge deal. A pipeline is, you know, it's a bit like a set of dominoes that are all set up, um, and you have to hit them all in the right order um, to to get the result you want, which is... Or, Trans Mountain obviously wants the pipeline. Um, and so in this specific area, it was identified as one of Trans Mountain's priority areas this past summer because if they don't get the trees down this summer, then they won't be able to drill under the creeks in the area next summer 
and that will actually push the in-service date of their pipeline into 2023. Um, so this is, you know, it's a huge victory for these uh, folks that have been out looking, um, you know, just for these tiny little hummingbird nests and and what a story, you know, it just reminds me of, of the hummingbird that's putting out the forest fire, you know, one little beak full of water at a time. And in this case, the forest fire is, is climate change in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Okay, do you think it's reasonable to stop this project because it's one tiny little bird? I mean, I don't think this is an endangered species and the work has been shut down under the Migratory Bird Act, which I also think is kind of weird because as far as I know, this is not a migratory bird. I mean, it's illegal to destroy uh, bird's nests during nesting season in Canada. And I'll remind you that when this project was approved, they made such a big deal out of 157 conditions and look at all the plans we're going to have to make and all the environment. Don't worry, this will be the Cadillac of pipelines. It'll be the most environmentally friendly thing you could do. And it's pretty clear that the contractors on the ground are ignoring this. They destroy well, the size these of trees. the nest. The nest. The nest is the size of a ping pong ball. I mean, you're supposed to look. Matter. You're supposed to go through this entire tree looking for every tiny little speck. Yes, that is the law. <laughs> Biologists need to do this work, and it's up. And the regulator needs to be doing this work. And the fact that it's up to community groups of like local birders to go and hold Trans Mountain to account for the conditions that the government approved this for is absolutely appalling. Okay, let me go to Margareta. Margareta, what do you think? Look, Mike, it's obvious that the hummingbirds are a pretext. Despite their efforts, these opponents haven't persuaded Canadians that shutting down the oil sands is the way to go. They keep saying that uh, removing the Canadian export market is the key to energy transition. You know, that'd be great news for OPEC, (laughs) but that's not it. Energy transformation, which we have the resources to accomplish, is the path forward. And, you know, as as we just heard, Mike, this came from a freshly established network of community bird watchers. I'm sure that a community organization with a history of protecting birds in the region would be all over it any time construction was underway. Like with that Amazon redevelopment that's uh, just a hop and a skip away in Stafferton. But yet it seems like only pipelines are worth monitoring these days. I, I think that's really, really funny, personally, and I don't think it's the path forward. Uh, this is a responsible proponent under the most responsible, well-regulated environment in the world for energy products. But should they have found this nest? I mean, they chopped this tree down with this poor little hummingbird's nest in it. I think that's a really heartbreaking story. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, my heartstrings are, are, are strung, but, but, but Mike, that, that's just not realistic. We have to be reasonable. I'm the biggest animal and nature lover. I'm glad that we have legislation that protects at-risk species, and it ensures yeah. that Canadian natural resource development is done to the highest global standard, but it has to be reasonable. For goodness sake, there are exactly 92 snakes in Kamloops carefully removed by the project crew that are going to be repatriated when construction is finished. And, you know, that's that's something you just don't see anywhere else in the world. Do this is think, a nationally significant project, and I think we're yeah. doing a pretty good job. Okay. do you, Peter, do you think that it's interesting that you've got this community nest-finding network that alerted federal wildlife officials that they had found this nest. Is Do you know anything about this network? Like, are they fanning out now looking for every nest they can find in the pipeline route? Absolutely. You know, we're working we're working closely with the Community Nest Finding Network. I'm heading out later this afternoon to, to go and check out other places where oh. Trans Mountain is clearing forests during a migratory bird window against the advice of Environment Canada. Um, and we're going to hold them to account for the conditions that they, uh, you know, touted so uh, proudly when this project was approved. 
So do you think that it's possible that other nests could be find and found and delay construction? Because it's not just hummingbirds, but there's a long list of bird species that are covered by this Migratory Bird Act, including some very common ones. I just looked at it this morning, and there's like robins and pigeons on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, birds are nesting right now, and companies yeah. aren't supposed to be clearing trees during this window. Trans Mountain is doing this because they are so behind in their schedule that they are having to work within these ecological windows, um, you know, when they, when they should be working in the win- windows what, of least risk to wildlife. What do you think of Margareta's support of the pipeline that she says this project is in the national interest and it should go forward? Why do you think otherwise? I don't think it's in the national interest. And the truth is the economic case for this pipeline has fallen apart completely and since it was first proposed in 2012. It's based on $80 a barrel oil. The pipeline that is existing, the oil that was running through it now, is going to Washington and California, who have both recently said that all new vehicles by 2035 are going to be electric vehicles. And so are we, are we really doing this? Are we building this, you know, $18 billion pipeline um, in order to, you know, supply oil to these refineries for the next decade or so? That seems crazy to me. And Margaret- we need to transition. And even the union... Four oil and gas workers in Canada yesterday came out in support of a higher climate target for Canada, which would involve massive production cuts from the tar sands. Margareta, what do you say to that? I'm not persuaded by fantasy economics, and we just need to be careful not to have unrealistic expectations. Modern life is energy and resource intensive. We get national health care, schools, ports, electricity, toothbrush on our toothpaste on our toothbrushes because we build, and that's what Canada needs to do responsibly developing our natural resources, including our oil and gas, it grows Canada's prosperity. It maintains our global relevance in a changing world, not churning out every single potential legal roadblock to a project you don't like and systematically going through them one by one, nest at a time. What do you say to that, Peter? You know, I think it's interesting to call it fantasy economics because I think that resource works and the oil industry is living in a fantasy. The world needs to move off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And every year we delay that is going to cost lives. You know, we live economics on this planet um, exists within the natural boundaries of this planet. And we are warming it to the point where we're not going to have an economy if the world warms three to four degrees Celsius. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, Margareta Dovgal from Resource Works. The movie Nomad Land was the big winner at the Academy Awards on the weekend. It stars the great actress Frances McDormand, who lives leaves her hometown after her husband dies and she loses her job. She decides to hit the road and live in her van where she finds a community of fellow travelers and van dwellers. My next guest is Bob Wells. He is a real-life nomad. He plays himself in the movie. He has a very memorable and powerful scene with McDormand in the film, and I am just delighted to welcome him to the show. Bob, thanks a lot for coming on. It is truly my pleasure. All right, Bob, where are you at right now? I am in a little town called Pahrump, Nevada. No one can pronounce it, but that's okay. It's a very pleasant day, and I'm in the desert. Oh, I love it, Bob. And are you in your van as we speak? I am. One thing with the uh, desert is it tends to be windy, and it's a windy day. 
Okay, Bob, I'm thrilled you could take the time for us because a lot of people are, are talking to you these days after your turn in the movie and, of course, the, the wonderful success that Nomadland had at the Oscars with the Best Picture Award. Did you watch the Academy Awards on the weekend? I did. A group of us uh, got together and watched it on a communal TV. We had an Oscar party, and I enjoyed it and uh, was uh, thrilled for the success of the, the entire crew. Okay, that's wonderful, and congratulations on your involvement in the movie. There's so many questions I got for you, Bob. Let me let me start with how this all all began for you. Can you tell me the story of how you ended up uh, living in your van and traveling around America? Well, I um, it began many years ago. I was going through a divorce, uh, as so many of us do, and uh, the economic devastation of the divorce uh, meant that I could no. I had to run two households, whereas before there was one household and and we were doing okay with economically with that, all of a sudden there had to be two households, and the money just wasn't there. And so I had to find a solution of how I was going to live very, very cheaply. And mm-hmm. I'd always been a camper and a backpacker. You know, I knew how to, uh, to live out of a tent for, for literally months at a time. And so I thought, well, if I can live uh, in a tent, I can live in a van. And every day on the way to work, I, I drove past a, an old van that was for sale, and I thought, I could live in that, and uh, <laughs> that would solve all my problems. I wouldn't be paying rent anymore. So I stopped one day on the way to work and uh, asked him, and he said, yeah, it's for sale. It's, we talked about it. We drove it and all that. I bought it and moved in that night. And so that's the story of how I became a van dweller. Wow. And when was that? 1995. Okay, so you've been doing this for quite, for quite a long time. Can you describe your van, and wh- what's it like in there? How have you got it set up for yourself there? Well, I mean, quick correction. I haven't been to uh, – I went back to living in a house briefly. Okay. And so, well, not briefly for a long time. So I've been uh, – I've lived in a, a vehicle for a total of 19 years. 19 not, years. Not the okay. entire time. Right. Um, okay. Right now, my van is very simple. I have a high-top van, so I can stand up. That's really, really helpful and important. Um, but I have a solar on the roof, so I have electricity. I have a fridge. I, I want uh, I want refrigeration. I have a microwave. I have a cook stove and a bed, and everything else is just storage and a place to live and work. Okay. Do you got a bathroom in there? No. No, we go back to primitive methods. Uh, I like to think of it <laughs> as... Uh, I've gained freedom by my way of life, but I have had, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I've had to give up some comforts. And one of the comforts I had to give up was an actual bathroom. There's just not room. So I have gone back to what our uh, forefathers did for millennia. I use um, a, a chamber pot, essentially, and either bury it outside or dispose of it properly in a, um, in a, uh, a, right. a toilet. Okay. Speaking to Bob Wells, he's a real life van dweller. He's a nomad. He was featured in the in the award winning film Nomad Land. Bob, what has this been like for you? Like when you first made this transition of traveling, living in your van, uh, is that something? It sounds like it's something you did out of necessity at the, to begin with. But is it a way of life that you came to embrace? Right. It very quickly did because I had been a camper and a backpacker, and I loved being in nature and 
you know, at the end of every camping trip was a regret. You know, I wish I could stay out here. So in essence, um, after a while, it became, well, this isn't uh, a sacrifice. This is going camping for the rest of my life, the thing I love to do. And so it became a real pleasure. At first, there was a real sense of shame. You know, society tells us what uh, what life is supposed to look like for each of us. Uh, in America, we call it the American dream, but it's I'm sure it's similar in Canada that you you uh, you go to college, you get an education, you find a career, you get married, you have kids, you have a house with a white picket fence, and you work there for the rest of your life, and then you retire in the golden years. And that was the the American dream as I know it, and I found out for me it was a nightmare. I didn't know there was any other choice, but when I was forced into another choice, I discovered that was the one that really made me happy. Wow, that's incredible. Now, you've also got um, a website. You've got a very successful YouTube channel, which I've been checking out. Our Cheap RV Living is the name of your YouTube. You got like what? I think you got like what, 500,000 followers on there on YouTube now? I do, yes. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And cheaprvliving.com is, is your website. What do you do with these? Like, are, Do you, you help other people get into this lifestyle? Is that the purpose? Right. My goal is primarily um, threefold. I try to inspire people. People don't know about it. They don't even know it exists. So I try to tell people about it, communicate to them, and inspire them that it might be worth looking into. And then if they decide to look into it, I, um, I try to teach them how the ins, the outs, the difficulties, the pitfalls. And uh, I, another thing I try to do is to uh, coordinate them gathering together and meeting each other. Because right. you, it's, you, don't, you don't want a lonely life out here. You want a rich, full life. And part of that is other people. And so yeah. uh, I've also worked to build a community. Yeah, well, you certainly had a lot of success with that. And you mentioned that right now you're speaking to us from your van in Pahrump, Nevada. Do you um, do you move around a lot? Do you go from different locations around the country in your van? Yes, I think of myself as a snowbird, which is a concept we're all familiar with. Um, with the, uh, I move with the seasons, as humans have for millions of years. Um, I in the Personally, I, in the winter, I go to the south, to the desert, where it's warm. And as it gets hot, I move north. I progressively move north north with the weather, and particularly higher in elevation. Or, as you know, in Vancouver, out on the coast, you get a fairly mild, reasonably mild weather year-round. Um, so there are places you can go and beat the, the miserable heat or the miserable cold. And so that's what I do. I follow the temperatures. Okay, do you ever get up to Canada? I guess not much these days with the with the border restrictions, but have you traveled through Canada at all in the past? I um I lived in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska for 45 years and I've driven the Alcan oh, at least a dozen times in my life. So, of course, I've driven across Canada north to south all many, many times and um actually know BC fairly well. I think I think BC may be one of the most beautiful places in in the world. It's just amazing. And then, of course, over on the Canadian Rockies, you share with Alberta, just just breathtaking. You, there aren't words to describe the beauty of it. I'm continuing my, my conversation now with Bob Wells. He's a pioneer of van living. He had a very memorable appearance in the Oscar-winning film Nomadland. 
playing himself in the movie. And I'm just delighted to speak to him. Bob is in his van in Pahrump, Nevada. Bob, okay, Bob, you got to tell me the story of how, how this happened with the movie. How did you get into this movie? Well, as I mentioned, I try to bring together people and build community. And uh, over the years, I've started something called, uh, I call the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. It's a gathering of uh-huh. nomads and campers and people who love nature out in the desert in Arizona. And um, at some of those meetings, at those gatherings, I met Jessica Bruder, who wrote the book Nomadland. And uh, she fell in love kind of with the lifestyle, bought her own van, traveled in it for a while. And she wrote uh, an article for uh, a magazine here in the U.S. and then later wrote the book. And uh, because uh, I think of myself as the, the center point to put people together, and she met Linda May, the main character, uh, it, well, the model for the main character, Fern, in the movie. Right. And so uh, later, when uh, Francis McDermott optioned the book, I was a fairly, I had a role in it, an important role, small but important role. And so I, they approached me that uh, they were doing the movie, and uh, Chloe Zhao, who was uh, the director, won the Oscar for Best Director. Yes. She works with the real people. That's her modus operandi. That's what she does. And so she contacted me and said, uh, hey, Bob, we're shooting this movie. Would you be interested in playing yourself in the movie? And, of course, wow. who wouldn't be? I mean, I want my 15 minutes of fame as, <laughs> as much as anyone. And so I jumped at the chance. Well, you're certainly getting that, Bob, that you had a very, very memorable appearance in the film. And I'm going to play a, a short clip here, Bob, of your uh, your scene in, in the film. It's a very memorable scene with the great actors, Francis McDermott, as you mentioned. And let's have a little listen to that. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. You know, I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. I always just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. And uh, whether it's a month or a year or sometimes years, I see them again. And I can look down the road and I can be certain in my heart that I'll see my son again. Oh, Okay, Bob, incredible scene there you had with uh, Francis McDermott. Do you remember shooting that scene? What was that like? Oh, yeah, that was that one will be etched in my memory forever. That one, I'll remember that one on my deathbed. Uh, well, it was just the amazing power of Frances McDermott as an actress. She, yeah. uh, you know, you hear this from real actors. I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form a real actor. Uh, how the one, two really pr- pr- uh, good actors uh, work together. They, they get, they create an energy and flow that builds each other up, and they become much more than the sum of their parts. Well, sitting there with Frances McDermott um, made me much more than who I was. It, Watching her work, she she pulled me into this this imaginary world that we were playing in, um, and just I can't even describe it. It's magical uh, yeah. when a when a truly great actress like Frances works. It's it's she pulls you in, and you become a time traveler. You travel to a different an imaginary place and time, and it's so real. Um, she made it very easy. Well, it certainly is a, an incredibly powerful scene, and congratulations on it, Bob. So when you travel around the country now, are you starting to get recognized everywhere you go? 
Yes, uh, I was always kind of a, a big fish in a teeny tiny little pond in the world of living in your van, RVing. So I, I'm kind of used to a little bit of recognition. Um, but uh, yeah, it has been more so. I'm not often recognized for the movie because of the pandemic. You know, not a whole lot of people have seen the movie. Had it been yeah. a normal year, I think you know it would have done well, pretty well at the box office. People would have been interested, but there essentially was no box office. Uh, so it's it's an odd year. I, not really. I'm not recognized much from the movie. Right. Well, maybe more now that it's won the Best Picture Oscar. You you, you never know. Um, just a few minutes left here, Bob. Could could you talk just briefly about the community of people that on the road, living in vans, nomad, this sort of traveling, working life that you've become so involved with? Like, who is the typical, the typical person, the typical nomad? Like in the film, Francis McDermott has suffered a very serious loss. I know you've had loss in your own life as well, and that's kind of what that scene was about that we just played. Is that typical for the people in this community, people who have had difficulties in their lives? Well, I think of I think of nomadic living as a large, really big tent, and inside that tent there are there are many smaller tents. So it begins with the older Americans. I think uh, it's a lot of older people, retired, near retirement, um, or or living on retired but not able to live on it. The amount of money they have to live on, that's the story of Fern in the movie. She couldn't yeah. live on her Social Security. Um, but it's it's not just those people. And we, we tend, because it's the story of one person, the fictional character Fern in the movie, we tend to think that's everyone. It is not. Um, there are, think about all the young people who are yeah. now buying vans and moving in. You know, we we call them the uh, at the uh, hashtag van life movement and yes they're all young people and they're not doing it because of grief they're doing it because they see a better way of life mm -hmm. they see a, an alternative to a, a failing society and so it it's a big tent with a lot of people and it's not really fair to summarize them with one person or one group it's a lot of people with a, a lot of backgrounds right and I would uh, say the larger group is the older and within the older group a lot of them are um, economic distress, economically distressed. Right. We just got one minute left here, Bob. Do you think, uh, is there anything you miss about, about your former life? Like when you were like your quote unquote settled life before you hit the road, is there anything you miss about that? Nothing at all. <laughs> I wouldn't go back. In fact, it's my goal to never, ever live in a house again. That, uh, that is not something I want for my life. And, uh, I just, it, I don't want that at all. Bob, it's been fascinating to talk to you, and uh, congratulations on the success with the film. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us here today, and safe travels to you. Thank you, and uh, the same to you. All right, thanks a lot. That is Bob Wells there. He's a, a real-life nomad. Cheap RV Living is the name of his YouTube channel. He's got like half a million followers there on YouTube. CheaprvLiving.com is his website. And he had a very memorable role in the movie Nomadland, which just won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now. Should British Columbia do a tougher lockdown to defeat this virus? Should Canada do a lockdown to stop the spread? Right now, we see a variety of enforcement measures. 
across the country. Here in BC, we've got new travel restrictions in place. You cannot travel outside of your designated region for non-essential travel. Roadblocks and checkpoints will be set up later this week. Other provinces in Canada doing some form of lockdown measures. Does it go far enough or does it not go does it go too far? Let's discuss now uh, with my guest, Anthony Fury, columnist at the Toronto Sun. Very pleased to welcome into the show. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Okay, we're also open to get Dr. Yanir Baryam from the COVID-0 movement. We're having a little trouble connecting with him right now, so we're trying to get him on uh, as scheduled. But, Anthony, let me go to you first. What are your thoughts right now on the uh, lockdown measures across Canada? Like, Are there any provinces right now in, in our country that are in like a total lockdown mode? Ontario is in a very aggressive lockdown right now. We are in in some ways in more of a lockdown than we were uh, a year ago during the first wave. We have uh, non-essential items roped off on shelves in a way that was not the case. Uh, A year ago, we have uh, people pushing for outdoor mask rules, which was not something that was going on a year ago. So, I mean, BC only needs to look to Ontario to say if there are people out there who are saying, this is not enough, we need more. Well, look at what's happening in Ontario, and, and we've done similar things in the past, and we have not uh, suddenly eliminated this virus by doing all of this. So there's a lot of reports and research out there uh, that suggest there are jurisdictions that have had voluntary measures, meaning they haven't had uh, legally enforced lockdowns, and they've had pretty much similar rates as places that have had enforced lockdowns. So I think we need to start talking a lot more about uh, 14 months out, the evidence we have, and also the, the colossal harms, both the immediate harms that have been caused by lockdowns and the conversation about what are we, what sort of harms to our future are, are we causing here? Things that we're not going to hear about until six months, 12 months, 12 years down the line. What kind of harms do you think are happening right now? Like, what are you hearing from people? Uh, well, there's definitely concerns about how delayed surgeries and uh, particularly delayed cancer screenings that have happened here in Ontario uh, have, have had a number of cancers that have gone unnoticed. There was a particular report about breast cancer screenings, for instance. A lot of pediatricians are sounding the alarm bell about uh, developmental delays for children and, and educational gaps and language gaps and, and a lot of harms being brought to children, which are, of course, the demographic that, well, as many pediatricians have said, coronavirus uh, one of, I guess, the if you can call it a positive thing about it, uh, is that uh, it's pretty much similar to influenza in children. In fact, statistically speaking, uh, fewer children are hospitalized in a year with COVID to date than, than are with influenza. So why are we doing so many harms uh, to our youth? Uh, I think BC's school policies are a little better than they are in other provinces. Well, the, school, uh, like the, schools are Ontario. Op- the schools are open here. What's happening in Ontario right now with schools? Uh, they are closed. In Ontario, pediatric experts said even if there's rising cases, do not close schools. You only close schools if children themselves are being directly harmed. They close the schools. There's fears they will stay closed for the rest of the school year. I understand in in B.C. um, lower grades do not have to wear masks indoors. In Ontario, they have to wear them both indoors and outdoors uh, during recess time. So uh, just heavy restrictions on kids. We're going into the second summer where small children will not be able to do uh, outdoor sports and recreation. And actually last weekend, Ontario Premier Doug Ford ordered the playgrounds closed. He was going to keep them closed for six weeks, but there was uh, uh, many little acts of civil disobedience and he just had to change that. What do you think about Ford's handling of this? I remember if we go back a year from now, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, Ford was like widely praised for his communication efforts and his leadership. 
things seem to have gotten more difficult politically for him. We saw him kind of have a very emotional news conference the other day where he apologized for some of the measures that he brought in and then sort of backed down on, notably some of the police enforcement powers that he brought in. What do you think about the way he has handled this in Ontario, and what's been the reaction of uh, Ontario residents largely? Well, a year ago, we were, you know, hashtag we're all in this together because, well, we were, because what is this new coronavirus thing? Uh, how does it work? Who's hit by it? Who do we treat it? And so forth. What is the actual fatality rate? A lot of unknown questions and many researchers and, and, and fantastic uh, minds in the medical community actually answered a number of those questions uh, for us. And, and, and look, I think, and, and, and many infectious diseases experts I speak to across Canada think, okay, we've got this data set. Uh, we live in the age of analytics, of big data. Let's let's get a better response, a more nuanced, a more targeted response. Uh, Doug Ford is not actually embracing that right now in Ontario. Uh, the big thing right now is uh, decreasing mobility. So they don't actually target locations where there is spread right. going on. Well, they try to, but that is uh, not their main goal. Their main goal is reducing mobility. So they look at anonymized Google cell phone data. And they say, oh, too many people out and about in society. Even if they're just out and about to go to a golf course or, or, or what have you, we got to get those numbers down, which is what led him to very extreme measures saying we were going to stop people in the streets, uh, give police new powers to do that, yeah. uh, motorists and pedestrians and so forth. And, and folks just rose up and, and they said no to that. And I don't think they realized they were also saying no to, to COVID zero. They were saying no to the New Zealand and the Australian uh, response. Because if you want to talk about extreme measures, I mean, that's, that's what Ontario faced the other weekend. Okay. And, and a lot of people said enough. Okay, some people think it's been too extreme and others think that it hasn't gone far enough. Let's bring in Dr. Yanir Baryam now. Dr. Baryam is an MIT-trained scientist. He's a leading voice in the COVID-0 movement. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Baryam, thanks for coming on. Hi. Yeah, Dr. Bariam, can you give can you make the case for a tougher lockdown, like a COVID zero strategy? Why do you think that that's what the policy we should be pursuing? So the point is not the lockdown. The point is to get out of the pandemic, right? Um, if you do um, the way things have been done. We are a year and several months into the pandemic, and it's still here, at least in some parts of the world. Um, in other parts of the world, they're living lives in the, the pre-pandemic form with um, social lives, with economic uh, activity in the way that it used to be. And how did they accomplish that? And the answer is, they focused on the goal of elimination. And in order to achieve elimination, what you want to do is to stop transmission. So if you take the strongest possible lockdowns with the right parts of what that means, then you can stop transmission within a few weeks. Okay. Right? So the typical amount of time is four to six weeks. And if you do that, then you're done. So the goal is not the lockdown. The goal is the existence without the disease. The lockdown is a tool to get there. Okay, Anthony Fury, what do you think of that? Because a lot of people are looking jealously around the world right now at a country like New Zealand, which has been reopened, and, and they took some pretty severe steps. I mean, you know, Dr. Bariam says, look, it would be a very short term. You do a severe lockdown, and we get it over with quickly. But your thoughts? 
Well, those island nations that have pursued that strategy actually have gone back into many lockdowns. Ontarians rebelled at playground closures. They might be surprised to learn that New Zealand actually shut down the playgrounds, at least in the western part in Auckland, just last month uh, for a lockdown period. And, and let's also add that, yes, people do uh, look sort of admiringly at the life people are leading in New Zealand and Australia, but they also look admiringly at the life people are leading in Florida right now, which did not uh, pursue a New Zealand sort of strict uh, COVID zero lockdown approach. They pursued a more balanced approach, and by a number of metrics, uh, they're succeeding. Okay, Dr. Barian, what do you think of that? Well, <laughs> the death rate in Florida compared to New Zealand and Australia, but also you mentioned island nations, but what about Atlantic Canada? What about Vietnam and other countries? And um, the point is the following, that people are trying to think that this is somehow different or difficult to accomplish. And it is somewhat more, it is difficult than doing nothing in some sense, but it takes a short amount of time. The amount of time that there have been lockdowns in New Zealand and Australia is like a couple of months over the whole period that we've had the pandemic. Hmm. Over the whole year and some number of months, there's only been like a couple of months of lockdown that includes all of the few day and a couple of week lockdowns that people have had, whatever. I mean, there's you know, a few days here, a few days there. Um, uh, the point is that if you live with a disease, you end up paying a huge toll in terms of lives and livelihood. The economic analysis is very clear. If you get back to normal economic activity, there's a huge rapid rebound effect. And then you have sporting events with 50,000 people gathering and concerts. Okay, and, okay. And, and, you know, it's, it's just a totally different scenario, even than what you think is going on in Florida, where people are continuing to, make, in many ways, have restrictions. It's just that they're doing halfway restrictions over a year. Talking about lockdowns and COVID zero, my guests are Dr. Yanir Baryam, Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun. Hey, Anthony, real quick before we take a call here, what do you think about what Dr. Baryam said there before before the break? I mean, we do this thing quickly and then we can get back to going to ball games. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's never actually been done the four to six weeks. It reminds me of how when you talk to advocates of communism and socialism about troubles in Cuba and, and uh, Soviet Union and so forth, they say, oh, no, no, that wasn't actually real communism. Actually, one does it this way. I do want to add the most damning thing, I think, for COVID-0 advocates is that we're now at a point where not a single serious medical expert will deny that COVID-19 is transitioning into being an endemic illness. So here in Canada, when uh, they say 40 cases per day, that's the COVID-0 uh, group is called Canadian Shield. That's what they say we have to get to before we can end restrictions. There's never going to be a time in the rest of our lives when we only have 40 cases per day of COVID in society. Okay, well, let's uh, let's squeeze in a call here while we can and um, speak to Eric and Coquitlam. Eric, go ahead. I just wanted to say we can see what it looks like to live with the virus in India and Brazil with people running out of oxygen and bodies being cremated on the street. And we can see what happens when you choose not to in places like New Zealand and, and such. So I don't really see how there's a debate here. There's, there's no real living with the virus. Why not just do like a lockdown, get jabs and arms vaccinated, and then, you know, people stay alive and healthy. 
Okay, Anthony, what do you say to that? Yeah, like some of the images coming out of India are like horrific. What do you think? Yeah, I heard from some infectious diseases physicians this morning who were uh, telling me they feel that and there's reports that this is actually them dealing with the UK variant and they've never had a wild surge in their, their very populous country. So it's actually uh, comparable to what Canada had back in January. I don't know, but I think it's too soon to actually say what's really happening in India. And uh, there's a lot of middle of the road uh, examples. You take just New Zealand, take India. Those are both two extremes, but there's a lot of stuff going on uh, in the middle, much more nuanced. Okay, Dr. Bariam, what do you think? Yeah. So there actually isn't any middle of the road. The countries that have have allowed to live with the virus have hundredfold the uh, the health harm, the death, and the economic consequences are much much larger. This is analysis by economists and. Uh, he, he just mentioned that there are infectious disease experts or whatever. The problem indeed is that the experts in the West, by and large, are not pandemic or outbreak experts. They don't have experience with um, non-human diseases, with zoonotic outbreaks, which is this. And, and indeed, the metaphor that they use, many of them, is just incorrect about the ability to achieve elimination. And if you look at Lancet uh, editorial, editor-in-chief uh, Richard Horton wrote an editorial at the end of January saying perhaps now it is clear that it is not only possible but best to achieve elimination. So if we go to the real mm. experts who are familiar with neurotic outbreaks, and the editor-in-chief of the Lancet is not the only person who said that it's really widely known in the, among people who are experts in zoonotic outbreaks that elimination is very possible locally. That's what locally getting rid of the disease is. And that is something that we can achieve surely by doing the right kinds of action okay. in Canada. And that starts locally in a province and can expand across Canada. Okay, we just and have... Don't try it. Yeah. We just have one minute. One minute. We have one minute left, sadly. Anthony, can you respond to that? Uh, look, basically the ship has sailed on, on this approach. We've already seen a lot of Canadians rebelling. Uh, they know we have a border where we have a lot of truck traffic going back and forth, and we are something of an international hub uh, in terms of people coming and going. Uh, you know, we're dealing with that at Pearson Airport uh, right now. And it seems by and large Canadians have, have made the decision that they would like to see a more balanced and targeted approach. Do they want to battle uh, COVID-19? They definitely do. And they want to empower their governments to go after the hotspots. But I think this idea that, OK, children have to be denied a second summer of you know, outdoor activities and so forth when they're not even hard hit by this virus is uh, not something that Canadians want to go in. And, and they should Guys, we could uh, fill the whole show with this, and we have more callers waiting, but sadly we're out of time, so we'll just have to have you back, both back, and we could do it again, and I, I appreciate your time today. My guests there, thanks a lot for that. So Dr. Bar uh, Dr. Yanir Bariam was my guest. He's an MIT-trained scientist. He's a leading voice in the COVID-0 movement. Anthony Fury, he's a columnist in the for the Toronto Sun.